It's four o'clock and you're tuned to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Joan Bartlett and this is my last program for 2021. It's been a strange year with lockdowns more often than not, but we're here, all safe and sound, as the year draws to a close. Many thanks to the staff and technical people who have kept me on air for all of this year and we look forward to a lockdown-free 2022. But today it's a shortened program, but lots of news. Two more book reviews focusing on Palestine and Palestinians with APAN members, that's Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, Mark Furlong and Hugh Simpson. Wrap up of the year with the director of Genetics Network, Bob Phelps, journalist, researcher and author Nick McClellan with the Pacific Review for 2021. But let's see what Mr Kevin Healy has for us for this final program of 2021. A week, Jane, listener, when, in the we can't add to that department, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline last week, Company Profits Up As Wages Fall. It says it all. Profits up, great news. Wages fall, even greater news. Good for all of us. Profits rose 4% in the September quarter, aided the article admitted by $10 billion in state and federal corporate welfare, while wages dropped 0.8%, aided by no government handouts. The same week, petrol prices, for instance, rose 2.5%. No problem in filling up the company car, but maybe a bit more of a problem for those who need their car to get to wherever they've got to get to. And on the opposite page, to that exciting news about company profits and worker non-profits, headline to warm the hearts of all who believe in the greatest little economic order of them all. Militant union must pay $2.2 million over strike. Well, plus a bit more in costs and things and a few thousand more in fines on a couple of evil, evil maritime union officials who had the criminal audacity back in 2017 to call for industrial action after Pat Pricks and Club the Workers. A slight but necessary diversion here, Pat Pricks and Club the Workers who have done so much over so many years to make work on the waterfront so much better for the lazy, avaricious, unproductive workers they so care about. How could evil unions even consider industrial action against these model caring employers? Well, they did. Just because Pat Prick set up a section of the waterfront under the workers employing non-union labour, leading the out-of-control union to allege it was attempting to de-unionise the workforce. As if! And at least the non-union labour, which is after all their legal right, non-union labour was not ex-trained killers trained in Dubai to scab, or, or sorry, sorry, a legal word, do, do more than a fair day's work for less than a fair day's pay. His Honour understandably tore strips off the evil union for this total disregard for the law, advising it wisely that rather than pay millions in fines, its members' dues could be directed toward lawfully advancing the interests of the union's members. Good point, Your Honour. 
except that seemed to be exactly what they were doing. So there it is, profits up, wages down, an evil union put in its place. What a good week. And it got even better. For as the lawless union and workers continued to accuse good, good pat pricks of not taking negotiations seriously, Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, had had enough. He will take the union to court to have the limited ability it has to take legal industrial action, protected action, declared unprotected. Because he's sick to death of the union and workers destroying the national economy and everyone's Christmas with it. Uh, so you're intervening on one side of the dispute. Certainly not. I'm attacking the union, quite properly attacking the union, and not attacking their caring employer, which has a magnificent record of promoting reform on the waterfront. Uh, but, but, but that is taking sides. How can you say that? I have taken both sides into consideration. And it gets even, even better. Big economic guru Josh Prydem Icebergs has got that institution of class-balanced neoliberal style, the Productivity Commission, to investigate why there are problems with the maritime supply chain and no betting on where they'll finger the blame. Clue, it won't be Patrick's. And just when we thought it couldn't get any better, it gets even better. The evil, evil, evil CFMEU and its officials were fined more than two million for upsetting a crane company which exercised its right not to enter a reunion agreement. Or, as the troubler was, he smashed the evil construction union's jackboots con mission supremo Stephen McBurney, the workers explained sensibly, the union action strikes at the very heart of the protections contained in the fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like an act and the smash the evil union's jackboots improving productivity act. Uh, protection, Stephen. Yes, workers must be protected from evil unions. Uh, but what, what about their right to, to join a union? That right must be exercised with great discretion to ensure it does not interfere in their lives and poison their wonderful win-win relationship with their good, good, caring employer. Oh, such an exciting week. And the improving productivity in the Act's title shows we can't improve productivity if unions are involved. And caring employers who are so concerned about slow wages growth assure us we can't resolve slow wages growth until we improve productivity. But if evil unions are an impediment to productivity, then this exposes even more blatantly the drain evil unions are on wage growth. So the caring business class government's on the right track, making any union action on behalf of workers totally illegal. It's the government fighting to win higher wages for lazy, avaricious workers. Sadly, just one not-so-good news story this week. Poor great supermarket caring employer Kills Your Budget was sprung for underpaying thousands of workers more than $115 million over the past three years. Poor kills your budget. It must be devastated, which just shows the moral difference between caring employers and evil unions. The unions upset caring employers by deliberately, deliberately breaking the law by acting on behalf of their members, while kills your budget is another example of a poor caring employer making a small 115 million inadvertent mistake. Any wonder the government is so intent on further tightening laws to protect us from evil unions.
And this one really confuses me. Yet another report, this time from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, urges the government to force large companies to set and meet targets to reduce the gender pay gap and increase the number of women in the workforce. Uh, hang on, what were we celebrating back in 1972-73 when the courts ordered equal pay for equal work and we thought therefore we were celebrating equal pay for equal work? Oh, they must have given caring employers time to adjust to this new impediment to productivity and progress for having to pay women because caring employers need certainty. And women caused more problems as the Sex Discrimination Commission have brought down a report into rampant sex discrimination in the seat of government. Rampant sexual harassment and assault. Scomo, and Scomo said there was nothing he wasn't aware of. Uh, so if you knew about it, Scomo, why didn't you do something about it? I did. I waited for this report. So now you'll act. Certainly, I will call for a report on how we can deal with this report. And a caring business class party member told the ABC the other morning she had had no problems with coalition members but had been subject to sexism from Socialist Party members. Uh, so the Socialist Party is the problem, the interviewer interviewed. Oh no, I didn't mean to make it party political. Right, she just happened to mention the Socialist Party. Perhaps she mistook the Education Minister as a member of the Socialist Party after he celebrated the damning report by being accused of sexual power games, harassment and violence, which he of course denies, but nonetheless Tudge was given a nudge. And the interesting sideline was that the alleged violence occurred after he visited Kalgoorlie to introduce a cashless debit card that would ban the purchase of alcohol for the riffraff, then headed off and got pissed out of his mind, which mightn't take much piss to get out of, but showing there's absolutely no hypocrisy as far as that lot's concerned. As the Socialist Party courageously came up with a compromise climate change, if there is such a thing, policy that would not allow the government to attack it, that great contributor to the environment, Adani the Planet, wants the government to introduce specific laws to prevent these bloody environmentalists who refuse to accept the great benefits of exporting trillions of tonnes of old King Coal from blocking the trains taking that coal to the ports so it could head off to do its bit for the planet. Activists get nothing but a slap on the wrist and are back within weeks, a Bravas spokeswoman complained. See, it changed its name. Surely it didn't think Adani the planet was on the nose. Everyone has the right to express their opinion, provided they are doing so in a way that is legal. She was all understanding. And, of course, is totally ineffective. On that Socialist Party policy, which bit of renewal, not revolution, was totally unnecessary. Scuttle then got very excited when advised Omicron had arrived. Great, great, he's decided to talk to me at last. That'll help my election campaign. Uh, no, no, Mr. Supremo, Omicron, not, not Macron. There's every chance, of course, Macron isn't all that upset about our nuclear venture, but just doesn't want to talk to him. We can't blame him. Like in Rome and Glasgow last month, when Scummo was seen wandering around trying to find someone who would talk to him. Perhaps he could adopt his favourite solution, technology, not taxes, and get someone to make a robot that's programmed to talk to him. Although that's a bit dangerous because it, it would prove to be a lot more intelligent and would ultimately die or rust or whatever robots do from boredom. 
he must have felt even better when he learned Macron would rather talk to the Saudi clown prince dictator and murderer than him. Talking to himself, Scummo attacked critics who suggest the Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, is warmongering in his desperation to attack evil China. As we said last week, like a chihuahua itching to take on a Rottweiler with only one possible result. It's a tribute to his intelligence that he thinks we could. But given they're aware the only way we can have peace is to attack evil China, let's recommend we revert to the days of yore, when leaders who declared war led the cannon fodder into battle. Give them a chance to practice their convictions and wear that iconic slouch hat they so revere. Which, finally, sadly brings us to, in one of the most disgraceful attacks ever in the history of parliamentary democracy, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albingusi called poor Pete Buffhead. Goodness gracious, where would that have come from? Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was, and many thanks to Kevin for his week that was every week during 2021. And we'll hear more of Kevin in 2022. Get your Radical Summer Attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. 
Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Now the second last book in the series of reviews of books about Palestine and Palestinians as suggested by APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. And the book now is A Life of Edward Said by Professor Timothy Brennan, who works on the relationship between comparative literature, world literature and global English And the reviewer is Mark Furlong from APAN. Edward Said was Brennan's thesis advisor at Columbia University and Brennan remained a friend until Said's death in 2003. My first question to Mark was, did he believe it makes a difference to a biography when the subject is your friend? I think that's a really good question. Uh, I, I suspect that even more relevant to the possibility of writing a a thoughtfully critical book is that uh, the author, um, Tim Brennan, was given access to all of the estate's papers. That's all of Edward Sahid's correspondence, his private uh, diaries, um, his many, many hundreds, if not thousands of drafts, and and access to all of the uh, living uh, relatives and friends. And I suspect that because of that, closeness, not just his personal relationship with Sahid, uh, it made it likely that he would pull his punches a little. Now, I'm not saying that uh, Edward Sahid should have been shot down by uh, the biographer, not at all. He's a great, great man. But I think my reading of the uh, biography was that it really lacked in a number of ways a reflectively uh, critical uh, approach uh, uh, to uh, this great man's work. Yet you do write that he didn't shy away from controversies. I think that the um, the biography did shy away from being controversial. Um, a number of the things he said uh, that he wrote about, that's the author, Timothy Brennan, were uh, marginally uh, critical. But in the main, no, I think that the, the book, my main conclusion was that the book could have engaged more thoroughly with some of the ambiguities and some of the inconsistencies, even contradictions in Edward Sahid's uh, professional and to some extent personal life. For instance, uh, Timothy Brennan mentions in passing that uh, Sahid had a, an affair with uh, a particular scholar. It seems very likely that uh, rather than it was a one-off, which is what Brennan said, that that uh, uh, that affair lasted many years. Other other accounts uh, say that. And I think that Brennan was likely to be reticent to talk about something as personal as that, given his closeness to Edward Said's surviving family and friends. Uh, it would have been awkward to have given that particular 
inconsistency. There's something that does um, really um, mean that uh, the account of Saeed as a loving family man was, I think, uh, uh, gilding the lily a little. Uh, Edward Said was a complicated uh, character, and like many, uh, uh, this, he's got uh, inconsistencies that uh, um, I think uh, a thorough account uh, should be explicating rather than sliding over. Does he talk much about the relationship of Saeed with the authorities in Palestine? Yes, he talks uh, a fair amount uh, about that, uh, and I didn't go into this in the in the short review that I did, but he, uh, the author, um, Brennan, talks about Saeed having at one point a close relationship, or for some, some time a close relationship with the PLO, but that relationship uh, on Brennan's account really fell apart, and Saeed, uh, in the end, was somebody who was not popular with the Palestinian authorities, and he also, Saeed, was uh, critical of the approach uh, those authorities took to uh, various negotiations to the, the the administration of the PLO. He was uh, not uh, shy. That's Saeed was not shy about uh, being critical of the uh, Palestinian authorities. Reading the title of this book, it's A Life of Edward Sayed. What do you believe he means by that? That's, again, that's a really good question. In the preface to the book, Brennan says that what he is offering is an intellectual biography. And what he means by that, one assumes, is a biography of the evolution of Saeed's thinking, of his uh, conceptual life. But the book is much more than just that. There is a, a great deal of uh, attention through the book to the different different events in Saeed's life. For instance, early in the book, uh, uh, Brennan describes Saeed as being a very urbane um, but very materialist uh, character, somebody who uh, had a real taste for English uh, suits, who uh, had a, um, a long-term uh, fondness or even more than fondness for the accoutrements of the good life. Now, that's not about one's intellectual biography. Uh, that's much more uh, an account of um, something of the aesthetics of the man. And there was a lot of uh, discussion um, uh, about uh, Saeed's uh, personal life, uh, his relationships with uh, different friends, his mentors. So the book was a little inconsistent. Was it a general biography? Was it an intellectual biography? If it was an intellectual biography, the author, I think, really missed some respect for the reader. Uh, the author, I think, uh, slid between different uses of the word structural, for instance, as if the reader was being given bomb mots that you just should gratefully just accept rather than think, well, what, what does this author mean by this word here as opposed to earlier on? So I think the, the book was not clear or at least wasn't uh, clear in its execution of a consistent purpose. 437 pages, that's a pretty big book. What did you learn about Saeed from reading it? I learnt an awful lot about uh, Saeed from reading it. Uh, I'd read nothing like everything that he's written, but I, I, I think I had a good grounding in uh, Saeed's uh, uh, work. But I, I heard much more about Oh, sorry, read much more about his early life, his experiences growing up in uh, 
in effect, mostly Cairo. Uh, he wasn't based uh, for most of his youth in, uh, uh, in Palestine. Uh, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about the years he spent uh, as a, a higher um, high school student and then doing these different levels of uh, academic uh, qualification uh, in the US. Uh, I learnt much more about that. Uh, if one's read uh, Said's uh, autobiography, Out of Place, there's a lot of material there, um, but it's not a consistent account of his personal biography. You get much more of that from Grennan's uh, uh, biography. So, no, I, I learned uh, an awful lot. I learned a lot about the different encounters he had with different intellectual formations, particularly the, uh, not just these, but the French uh, uh, theorists, the deconstructionists uh, and the like. So uh, it was great to hear that. What one didn't get, though, was a really good account of how Said sifted through and got to a point of his own synthesis. It was uh, the account that was given was of an aggregation of different inputs rather than how they actually fitted together and where they didn't fit together. I know that um, all of these books that have been reviewed have been passed on to Samar Sabawi. I'm just wondering what she thought when you passed that book on to her? I'm not uh, sure what uh, the overall um, impression that she had of the book, other than I think uh, uh, she was uh, clear that it was a a really important book to review and that we um, were doing uh, uh, a good service in uh, in dignifying that that book uh, um, because it does bring to attention uh, a really, you know, uh, an extremely important person to broadly, if I can say, the movement. That person, even though he's known to everybody, he, he died almost 20 years ago. So you know, this is a, um, a, an important thing that I think there was support for bringing to a point of focus. Just in a couple of sentences, um, Mark, what do you believe his legacy is? That's very uh, hard to uh, uh, respond to. Uh, well, at, at one level, uh, mostly uh, Saeed is credited with the germination of a whole field, post-colonial studies. Uh, at another level, he was a, a great example of a, an activist academic. Uh, at uh, another level, he's, he leaves a legacy as somebody who was a, a great Palestinian and a great Palestinian uh, scholar and advocate. At another level, he just was a brilliant writer. I mean, some of his short pieces uh, that you can find in the London Review of Books, for instance, are just so wonderfully written, so erudite, and they sparkle. So hopefully there'll be uh, an interest that's generated from this book in his work. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. A good place to end, and thank you indeed for the chance. And I've been speaking with Mark Furlong, a member of Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes the fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. 
explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it? it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Next day, roundup of 2021 with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Any surprises, Bob? Well, nothing that one wouldn't predict, really. The federal government has been the main actor this year, I think, on 
a whole lot of fronts, including, of course, COVID. But uh, meanwhile, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet has had a uh, deregulatory agenda that it's been pursuing very diligently for the last couple of years, but particularly intensely this year. So we've seen, for instance, moves to restructure the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and to deregulate agricultural and veterinary chemicals, essentially turning over the assessment, the chemical assessments to the industry itself. The industry pays to be regulated and, of course, uh, under this government, it gets to uh, do what it likes. In the food area, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand has been deregulating and uh, at the moment it's talking about deregulating gene technology and foods produced using gene technology, basically by uh, redefining these terms and putting them under a heading of new breeding techniques. Anything that comes from a genetically engineered animal plant or microorganism will, according to Food Stamps Australia New Zealand, be um, not subject to any serious regulation by the regulators themselves, but will be self-assessed by the industry. The same is happening with human genetic engineering, which we can talk a bit further about. Irradiated food, of course, has been deregulated. Any fruit or vegetable can now be zapped with uh, the equivalent of 1.5 to 10 million X-ray equivalents uh, in order to kill fruit fly. Deregulation's the theme. Scott Morrison's government is the agent of these changes. Of course, there's going to be an election shortly, so all of us should be thinking about who we want for our next government. Let's talk a bit more about our food and the impacts of this on what we eat. Well, this is for the people who don't eat organic food? Well, they'll be sprayed more often and at higher doses with um, a huge range of chemicals, many of which are uh, banned in other parts of the world because they're either too toxic for human health or the environment. It's about time we fell into line with uh, what's happening overseas and got serious about um, ensuring that agricultural chemicals, uh, if we use them at all, uh, squeaky clean. There is no serious review process. The Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority have again uh, reassured everybody that Roundup, which is the main herbicide that's used, is A-OK for health and the environment. And likewise with a number of other very nasty chemicals, Paraquat, the triazine herbicides as well. We worked very seriously earlier in the year with the National Toxics Network and really the themes coming out of that were that the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, which now, like all the other regulators, use what they call uh, regulatory science rather than actual science, really accept the industry's word for most things, most of the so-called evidence that's put forward in these deregulatory processes is uh, from industry itself. Uh, any noise that the community or public interest groups like National Toxics or Gene Ethics might make to uh, uh, get some of these things under control and excluded from our farms and uh, our food supply are uh, really ignored. So the scientific evidence is on the on the back burner. The rationale, of course, for um, these deregulatory moves is often so-called red tape or green tape in the case of the environment. 
you know, it's justified as a way of making agriculture, the food supply and so on more efficient, more productive, more profitable, uh, rather than safer and uh, better for the environment and public health. The priorities are really being jiggled and they're not being jiggled in the public interest. They're um, being changed in relation to industry's imperatives. We saw, for example, in the, in the review of the APVMA that the review panel was also compromised. Everything that's done by this government appears to be compromised by appointing people who have clear commercial or professional conflicts of interest uh, in the thing that they're supposed to be reviewing. Of course, therefore, you get deregulation, you get weaker oversight, you get less access for the public to information and to have a say than to actually influence policy. We're getting into a much more dangerous situation, whether under Labor or any other government, uh, it would actually be better. It's pretty hard to say, but um, I think the debate is at least engaged around COVID and the vaccine that's going on. The trouble with that is that there's so much noise from all directions about all sorts of things that it's very hard to discern exactly the direction that's going in. And all of these other deregulatory moves that government and industry are making a kind of flying under the radar in a time when the global pandemic is number one. Food irradiation, Bob, how many types of food are now allowed to be irradiated? In principle, all so-called fresh fruits and vegetables are now candidates for irradiation. If a fruit, say a mango or a pawpaw, is um, grown in an area where there are fruit flies, then if it's going to go into a market that is supposed to be fruit fly free, uh, then it is going to be irradiated to kill the larvae of that particular insect pest. Of course, irradiated foods are supposed to be labelled, but uh, there are a whole lot of questions about how they'll actually be marketed and presented to the public uh, and whether or not we'll actually know that that's happening. We've been asking the supermarkets, for instance, uh, are you going to uh, display the irradiated product in the same section as your genuinely fresh fruits and vegetables? And we haven't been able to get a, a straight answer to that question to know whether or not they are going to properly label them to inform people that an irradiated food which can have uh, radiolytic products in it that's had its uh, shelf life extended and has had its nutrients reduced uh, whether or not they're going on to really inform the public of the changes. The first product off the cab off the rank was actually into New Zealand. Uh, Australian tomatoes being exported to New Zealand now require irradiation, but um, it's been pick, hard to pick up exactly what's happening there because um, uh, the regulator is Food Standards Australia New Zealand foods typically move very, very seamlessly between Australia and New Zealand because of the free trade agreement. <laughs> this glitch, having to label something with uh, a process that uh, people are not too happy about, that's going to raise questions whether or not the product can sell, whether the price will be right for people to actually buy 
and eat it if they're warned that uh, something has been exposed to these high levels of energy that can really affect the food quite substantially. What about farm animals? Bob, changes, we've had campaigns forever about caged chickens, pigs in crates, cattle in feedlots. What's been happening in that area of farming? I mean, feedlots and so on are used in Australia, but usually for fairly short-term finishing of the animal before it's actually slaughtered and marketed and its products marketed. We haven't seen in practice much change to the caging of uh, birds, um, chickens and so on. There has been some progress, I suppose, from uh, an animal welfare and humane point of view, but um, as far as the products are concerned, it's really a matter of them still churning them out. There are questions about the use of hormones, antibiotics, now that we have uh, superbugs, not only in the animal kingdom, but also uh, in hospitals and so on. There is alarm worldwide now about antibiotic resistance in all sorts of microorganisms. And when bacteria get out of control and you can't treat them, then they are going to kill some people. This is, again, another debate that should be going along with the COVID discussions about how do we deal with these things, but it tends to get all mixed up together. We are confronting over the next decade or two the problem that uh, there will be many bacteria harmful to human beings and probably to animal health as well that will really not be treatable. That's another public health issue that really needs to come to the fore. Uh, There is a global effort. The World Health Organization and other organizations are having big discussions among the experts about what you actually do. And there is quite a bit of research going on as well about alternative strategies. You know, if antibiotics are going to um, become ineffective, then are there other ways that we could actually uh, deal with some of the diseases that become rampant as a result of uh, these superbugs spreading nationally and around the world? The public health debate really needs to be a bit more nuanced than it has been. And I think in that we should be including a discussion about Australia's call for um, the labs in Wuhan and China to be um, examined because there are 59 similar biosafety level four labs, the really high security labs in 23 countries around the world. And we've got four of those in Australia as well, which house the deadliest pathogens that are known anywhere in the world in order to do experiments and uh, try to find cures for some of these things. And I think that the Australian government should be advocating a global review of uh, these high security laboratories, some of which around about 20% are uh, actually also looking at biological weapons research. This discussion needs to be much more broad and general than just saying, oh, we've got this problem with COVID. It might have been a lab in Wuhan, but we don't really know whether it was the lab or the the bat caves or the food market that caused the problem. We need a thorough review not only in China, which of course the Chinese are resisting because they're targeted and blamed, but we need to be looking at this as a general issue around the world. Are these labs secure? What's going on inside them? 
are any of the labs in Australia, for instance, doing any biological warfare-related research. We know, for instance, that down in Geelong, at the high security lab there, so-called gene drives research is going on. Uh, this research is funded by the US military. What they're interested in doing is trying to eliminate troublesome organisms. We've got these problems of feral animal pests, particularly rodents and rabbits and so on in Australia. Some of that research is going on to try to uh, develop genetic destruction systems which would um, be run through these things called gene drives, which drive deleterious genes through whole populations of particular animals in order to try to control or destroy the species. But the problem there is that we know that these things will go nationally, regionally, and perhaps even globally, taking mice or rats, for instance, out of ecological systems globally would be an absolute ecological disaster. We have a lot of other species depending on them for survival. They have a very important function. We need to re-examine research that would lead to species extinction, uh, so-called gene drive research, just as one example. In relation to the high security labs, we also need to look at um, a group of research activities called gain of function. And gain of function is where you take a pathogen like COVID or some other extremely dangerous organism and you make it more virulent and more likely to be transmitted uh, between animals and between animals and humans, etc., in order to understand what's going on and to try to develop strategies to um, head off the worst impacts of these things. We can't be sure that these labs are secure. This is really very dangerous research that many scientists around the world have gone public saying it's not worth the risk. We shouldn't be allowing this to happen. And yet it's going on uh, very extensively in these high security labs uh, without public knowledge, public discussion or debate. And uh, I think that's unsatisfactory as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the deregulation when you're talking about the crops in Australia, the farm animals, the fruit and vegetables? A lot of those products are exported. How does that work with other countries that we're deregulating and whatever with our products? Well, that is a big issue. And, and in relation, say, to genetically engineered crops, we've got the canola, for instance, at the moment which doesn't find a market in Europe. So there's a substantial uh, discount for any genetically manipulated canola, for instance. Most of our canola uh, will be sold into Europe, initially for biofuel production, but then also used in animal feed. But the genetically manipulated varieties can't go into that market and would go instead to um, uh, into the human food supply in Asia, for instance, uh, where canola is in demand. Uh, but it does attract a discount. So, for instance, last week in Western Australia, the genetically manipulated varieties can be sold, but at $100 less per tonne than the uh, conventional varieties. There is a debate there. Um, there's an issue, is it worth making the uh, canola crop more able to be sprayed 
more often and at higher doses with Roundup herbicide, but thereby having a genetically manipulated crop which can't be sold into a premium market and which also will contain residues of the herbicide that's been sprayed on it. And farmers are getting a little bit worried because uh, take Roundup, for instance, as a result of the cases that have been successfully won in the USA against Monsanto and Bayer over the induction of um, the cancer non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the most recent case, uh, a couple were awarded $86 million as a result of getting their cancers from exposure to Roundup. This has made everybody very jittery indeed. And what we see in Europe is that there's a huge debate now on uh, will Roundup be allowed to be used there anymore? At the moment, it's banned from the domestic market in France. It's under um, scrutiny and some restrictions in other countries in the European Union. And now, as a result of these cases in the USA, the successful cases of people suing uh, Bayer and Monsanto, the company has said they're not going to sell Roundup as a domestic weed killer for use in gardens or around uh, localities. It'll still be available for farms <laughs> for spraying into our food supply, but they're trying to avoid future liability. And this will, um, of course, uh, have implications for export markets. So if we're trying to sell a product into Europe or into other markets, then Roundup residues in those products in the future may be a no-no. We may not be able to use it here. So the farming politicians are leaping up and down saying, oh, we, we could lose the use of Roundup, which is the most um, broad-spectrum and useful herbicide available, although some weeds are now developing resistance to it, remains probably the, uh, the most able to kill most green plants unless they've got the uh, genetically manipulated to protect them uh, from being killed. It's a slightly complex debate, but the bottom line is that trade is being affected. Farmers are very alive to this. And many more of them now are moving to integrated pest management systems with lower use of synthetic chemicals. They're becoming aware that their soil is really the basis of the success of any farming enterprise and are becoming uh, much more alert to that. And then there are intercropping where you companion plant your broad acre crops instead of just planting a monoculture. That is starting to be discussed as a way of controlling weeds and other insect pests and so on as well. Some good is coming out of the, the backlash against chemical use and the presence of uh, chemical residues in the food supply, not only around the world but here in Australia as well. That's a positive thing as a result of uh, the sorts of campaigns that Gene Ethics, National Toxic, Friends of the Earth and a number of other organisations are running. Are producers of food that's being radiated sending it off overseas? Well, yes. The uh, tomatoes going into New Zealand now require irradiation because the New Zealand tomato producers are very concerned that fruit fly larvae from Australia not get into their production systems in New Zealand and put it in the position of having to irradiate everything as well. 
So they want to keep their tomato supply squeaky clean and to make sure that the Australian uh, supply uh, doesn't contain any live uh, fruit fly larvae as well. The industry itself is pressuring for some of these technologies to be used, particularly in international trade. And indeed, things going into North America in particular probably will need irradiation. And likewise, stuff coming into Australia will be in some cases irradiated as well to ensure that pests from overseas uh, do not come into our production systems. But, but that said, we need to bear in mind that in the end, it's the shoppers who are going to make a decision about this, provided we are fully informed. And that depends on whether or not there is effective labelling, whether the information about the impacts of irradiation, the radiolytic uh, residues that can be left, the decrease in nutritional value that happens when you uh, expose, you, when you pre-cook basically a fresh fruit and vegetable but leaving it looking as though it's still fresh. Of course, the shelf life of these treated fruits and vegetables will be extended as well. So ensuring that you're buying uh, something that's still fit for purpose and is not just looking good but is actually also nutritious and fresh and and good as it should be, that these things are choices for shoppers. Shoppers have the power. They need to read the labels. They need to make sure, um, particularly in relation to ultra-processed food, that they're getting a food that actually justifies buying and eating it that is not going to be um, detrimental in some way. Of course, there's also the organic food supply, and organics, of course, don't irradiate their products, don't use synthetic chemicals, and make sure, particularly through farmer's markets, that the product gets to you fresh and in good condition, then we can rest a lot easier. The organic industry has management practices which should be adopted by all producers, really, where they actually look after their produce and don't simply allow the fruit fly or the pest or the weeds to take over and then treat them afterwards. They've got a whole-of-life management system that uh, keeps the produce in good condition from the farm to the food supplier. To make this whole thing work, shoppers really need to be aware of the issues, to be insisting to the places that they shop that they want to know what's going on, that they need to know what's been done to the fruits and vegetables and other foods as well, and that uh, they're getting value for money because uh, when you take shortcuts by treating a food because it's actually substandard, and I think that's what you can say about irradiation and some of the other processes that are done, particularly to ultra-processed foods, that you aren't getting value for money when you buy and eat them because they're not providing those healthy benefits that, that one should expect from such foods. If we're not, you know, what we eat is very critical to how we are and uh, we need to be thinking about those issues all the time. Spending our food budgets wisely, getting the best food we can, uh, not just thinking about the lowest price, because the lowest price usually means the lowest value as well. Bob Phelps, the Director of the Gene Ethics Network, and we'll hear more from Bob and the Gene Ethics Network on the program next year.
kicking off the National Weekend of Action Against Orcas, get down to the State Library on Friday the 10th of December for International Human Rights Day, calling for human rights and not another military pact. The Orcas Pact seeks to tie Australia into a forever partnership with the US and UK involving military, education, resource extraction, technology development, manufacturing. War is the antithesis of human rights, wreaking environmental destruction that not only endangers First Nations communities on the front lines, but generations of our children to come. Come and take back the streets with music, performance and speeches with MC Tom Ballard, Scott Ludlam, Liz Turner, 3CR's Jacob Grek, Combat Wombat and the Solidarity Sound System. Join us on Friday, December 10th at the State Library at 5.15pm and visit renegadeactivist.org for more information. You don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. all filmmakers the ninth annual setting sun film festival wants your film enter a short or a feature-length film for the chance to see your work up on the gorgeous sun theater screen in yarraville the sun theater was voted one of the most beautiful theaters in the world with up to ten thousand dollars in prizes for winners entries close on the 31st of january 2022 Go to settingsun.com.au and enter your film now. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
Celebrate a family-friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. The final in the series by APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, members of recent books about Palestine and Palestinians. And today the reviewer is Hugh Simpson and the book is Palestine, a 4,000 year history. The author, Noor Masalha. I asked you first about the author and his work prior to Palestine, a 4,000 year history. I haven't done too much research on him, just like a bit of a background information and I glanced over a couple of his articles that he'd read and he is a Palestinian academic, I believe in London, 
And he, this is sort of his interest area. He's looked a lot at topography and, and the importance of place names in Indigenous self-determination. He wrote his most prominent article on looking at how place names in Palestine have been replaced by Israeli names as like a intentional form of erasure. Come to that in a little bit, but I want to just say what one reviewer wrote. The concept of Palestine, contrary to accepted belief, is not a modern invention or one constructed in opposition to Israel, but rooted firmly in ancient past. How does he do that in the book? He looks a lot not just at biblical text, which is what a lot of Israel is, is rooted in and where a lot of those Israeli terms come from, but more extends into like, a, like various and diverse ranges of historical accounts from 10th century geographers' reports to annals from uh, Greece and Rome when they were in the area and sort of, sort of explains that a lot of modern Israel and that claim is to do more with biblical references and we don't use biblical references or use the Bible as as a reference to historical facts in any other region other than that. And he sort of counters that and in sort of investigates more of those diverse sources and demonstrates that Palestine has always been a place and all of those place names have been consistent throughout history. How does he get back four thousand years? A lot of it is looking at I think it's the same sort of thing. It's like a very, it's a very like diverse range of research and where he gets the accounts from. And I was pretty blown away by the the quantity and scope of the research that he did and the amount of resources that he looked over. So a lot of them were from historical accounts from those, I guess, colonising empires like the uh, Byzantine and Roman empires and the Ottoman Empire and looking at the records that they had and then also looking at accounts from Palestinian people. Surely Palestine over those centuries must have been an important place too because of its situation on the Mediterranean. Does he talk about that at all? Yeah, he does. He talks about the fact that Palestine was really central to a lot of those dynasties, like the Roman dynasty and the, and the Byzantine and the Ottoman dynasty, because it was such a central um, location for trade and that some of those cities in Palestine were incredibly vibrant, diverse, bustling areas of, of trade and mercantilism. And conversely, it would have been a place where different tribes and maybe dynasties would have liked to have that piece of land for themselves? Definitely. I think because of religious importance, for one, but also because of the geopolitical importance of that land and having that as sort of like a point, a, a bridge between those regions. And he found variations of the name Palestine. What did he find? I guess Palestine, it, it was the... the most common name at the moment is Palestine, which is how it's in Arabic because there's no P, P in Arabic language. And then a lot of it, sort of the changes over the centuries has sort of been like due to the influence of the sort of whichever empire is dominant in the area. So 
when Rome was there, it became sort of Romanized a little bit, just like differentiated between, slightly differentiated depending on who was in power at the time and sort of the, the language, their language and how that sort of combined with it. You mentioned earlier the way that Israel's attempted to erase Palestinian history by changing the place names. When the State of Israel was declared, they not only destroyed the villages and towns and, and forced the people out in the 1940s, but as you said, they've changed the names of existing places. How frequently did they do that? How often? Uh, I couldn't tell you probably how often specifically, but I know it was sort of like a a part of a policy and part of the like part of the colonial narrative to do that in as many places as possible. So I think it's a pretty comprehensive project that was embarked on. This book is a, a huge undertaking for just one person and, and one book. What did you get out of it mainly? I think just the biggest thing that I took away was how vast the history of Palestine was. I didn't really understand the importance of it in so many different empires and and how it was such a central tenet of so many different like time periods and and how important it was in in history and and just how ingrained it was in the histories of so many different empires your review was sent off to a Palestinian to have a look at it. What was her opinion? Uh, she thought it was good. There was just a couple of issues in the original draft about some of the things that I'd said that could have been slightly problematic, well, that were slightly problematic in terms of... I think in the original draft I wrote that that it's a hard book, sort of answers or like answers to a lot of the myths that Israel puts up and I and but without sort of talking about those myths and I, I mentioned that but it's not really the role of any Palestinian academic or author activist or anyone to have to repeat those or to discuss them. Everyone should read this book? I think it's a really important book to read for anyone that's interested in the Palestinian cause and to understand really comprehensively why it is so important. And the best part of it for you was? The best part, I think, was just learning more about Palestine and, like, the vast history. As I said, I didn't know that much of it and I sort of probably only knew the last 200 years of history and sort of getting a more broad understanding of, of such a long and vast history was, was such a, a pleasure. And what do you believe you can do with that knowledge now you've got it? I think share it with more people and also I think it's been really important any time that you do hear sort of those myths, like those Israeli myths repeated or, or when, when friends or anyone brings that stuff up, it's really important to have like a solid knowledge base to come from and to, to combat those myths instead of just like disagreeing with the person and not knowing why you disagree. Having like a really strong evidence-based knowledge base is, is really important, I think, to comprehensively disagree or to, to demonstrate why someone's wrong. Are you aware of any Israelis or Zionists who have replied to this book and what their thoughts are on it? No, I haven't seen any um, Zionist replies to the book. 
be a good one to send to Colin Rubenstein? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Thanks for that, Hugh. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. And that was the final review of books chosen by APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, or just some of the books that they've chosen, looking at Palestine and Palestinians. And the reviewer was Hugh Simpson, and the book, Palestine, A 4,000-Year History, and the author, Nur Asala. I hope you've found some of those interesting, and perhaps if you're into giving presents at Christmas, maybe they're a good idea. Have a look for them. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. To hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR 10 a.m. Saturdays. Five million people amidst the war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. 
services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And for the final interview for 2021, Nick McClellan, journalist, researcher and author, whose knowledge and support of the Pacific Nations and its citizens is admired by many. We began the interview with a focus on the Solomon Islands, where demonstrations and riots began on the 24th of November. And I asked Nick for the background to the Troubles. Like countries all around the world, the Solomon Islands and the people of the Solomon Islands have been through difficult times in the last year or so related to the COVID pandemic. Like many countries in the Pacific Islands, uh, Solomon's shut down their borders uh, early in 2020 in order to uh, limit the uh, arrival of people uh, who might uh, transmit the coronavirus. That had a number of economic impacts, uh, affecting exports, uh, affecting the local economy. They have a pretty small tourism industry, but it's been, uh, you know, shattered basically by the the, uh, COVID restrictions that globally we've all faced. And uh, the disruption of supply chains, the disruption of people moving in and out, uh, uh, disruption of opportunities for people to work overseas as seasonal workers, has all meant people have been doing it incredibly tough. Um, over the last couple of years because Solomon Islands is a least developed country according to UN standards. It's a very poor country and also a very large country by Pacific standards, uh, nearly half a million people, which is pretty big by comparison to many smaller island states. So the pandemic has overlaid a longer-term problem of resource battles within Solomon Islands. You know, along with Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands for many, many years has been one of the key sources of logging. Originally, back in colonial days, for Lever Brothers and Unilever, um, more recently for corporations from throughout Asia, particularly Malaysia, uh, Japan, uh, and more recently, Taiwan and China. And so you've had a a situation where there's been massive... uh, environmental and economic impacts from uh, clear-fell logging and uh, taking lots of beautiful hardwood out of the forests of Solomon Islands uh, for export to uh, other countries. And and right from the beginning, this industry has been notorious for levels of uh, environmental damage, levels of corruption amongst officials, and uh, limited returns for the people who actually own the lands and forests, the landowners, the resource owners, on whose uh, land the the forestry is being done. And, you know, it's a a feature of political economy that, um, you know, governments uh, can be strong states or weak states. You know, mining companies like strong states. 
uh, if they're going to make an investment that's going to last 30 or 40 years, you want to know that the government's going to back up your property rights, your capital investment in the country. In contrast, logging companies like a weak state, like weak government controls, they don't want environmental officers poking around to see the damage they're doing. They don't want customs and revenue people checking on how many logs they're exporting or the quality of their logs so that the royalties and revenues will flow back to the central government. So all of this has come to a head, these combination of problems around the climate emergency, around the pandemic, and around long-term extractive industries, particularly forestry in the Solomon Islands, where the inequities and the tensions that have existed in the society have blown up once again, as they did uh, some decades ago, which led to the regional intervention mission known as Ramsey. So we've got Ramsey Mark II now. Yeah, the response from Australia and uh, other major countries in the region, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, New Zealand, has been to send police and uh, uh, some military forces to assist the Solomon Islands government after days of rioting uh, and uh, arson in the the capital city, Honiara. You know, this this goes back 20 years, more than 20 years. In 2000, the then government of Solomon Islands asked... uh, the Howard government for uh, deployment of uh, 10 police officers to assist with maintaining security in the middle of troubles that were existing at the time between uh, a a military force known as the Malaita Eagle Force and uh, people on the main island of Guadalcanal, which is where the uh, capital Honiara is located. Malaita is a a large province uh, in the eastern Solomons. Uh, It's uh, got the biggest population, but it's also very poorly uh, supported in terms of infrastructure and services, government outreach, uh, electricity, and so on. So many Malaitans have long moved onto the main island of Guadalcanal, uh, settled in and around uh, the capital, Honiara, which has a number of squatter settlements. And so there's always been tensions between local Guadalcanal landowners and uh, people who've migrated or moved from uh, Malaita and other provinces into the the main island and particularly into the capital city, Honiara. Um, So those tensions have been there for a long time. In 2000, the Kemakeza government, as it was then, asked for support from Australia, which wasn't forthcoming. Um, Alexander Downer said, oh, why should we get involved? Three years later, of course, um, as things had blown up, there was action by Australia and New Zealand together with four of island countries. Um, Australia you know, ended up paying over 14 years um, nearly $3 billion, I think $2.8 billion Australian dollars for the Ramsey intervention that lasted from uh, 2003 to 2017. And so, you know, the current intervention is pretty small, but it, it raises questions about the, uh, you know, the effectiveness of the previous intervention where literally billions of dollars were spent trying to resolve these underlying problems and in some ways treating the symptoms rather than the causes of social and political tension in the Solomons. Why are Chinese businesses being burnt down? Well, there's, uh, there's always been a Chinese community in Solomons, just as there are, is in Australia, dating back to, to colonial times, to the 19th century. So there are old Chinese and new Chinese, um, to use a shorthand, uh, long, well-established Chinese uh, families that are very involved in the business community in, in Solomon Islands. 
but more recently, there's been a lot more Chinese migration, particularly from the People's Republic, but also from Taiwan. Um, and for many, many years, Solomon Islands was aligned with Taiwan uh, politically rather than the People's Republic of China. Um, so you had a lot of Taiwanese investment, Taiwanese businesses setting up, and also some migration, both from the PRC and from Taiwan. And in many cases, these people set up small businesses. So if you go into trade stores in Honiara in the capital, uh, you know, local little supermarkets and uh, shopping things, you'll find that often there's a Chinese owner, and they may be a new Chinese owner, someone recently arrived in recent years, recent decades, you know, the staff may be Solomon Islanders, but the owners uh, often sitting there uh, supervising matters will be a, a, a Chinese businessman. So there's always been tensions between uh, local indigenous businessmen and the Chinese uh, uh, community. And there is a Chinatown, uh, an area of Honiara, and that's always been a target for rioters. And so you sometimes have uh, local businesses uh, being protected, whereas uh, Chinese businesses will be targeted for uh, looting, for rioting, uh, for even arson during conflicts, and that's what we've seen uh, in recent times. And so, uh, you know, for the Chinese, it's a concern. And I think one of the reasons that Australia and New Zealand so rapidly sent uh, troops and police to support uh, the government of the Solomon Islands um, is that they have, Australia for, for a number of years has been fearful that China might send military forces and police to protect its citizens. Um, who are living in the Pacific in reasonable numbers. You know, in the past, China has sent civilian aircraft to evacuate people. For example, back in 2006, where there were also riots related to the Ramsey disputes, China sent a civilian aircraft to evacuate a number of its uh, civilians. Um, and the Australian Defence Force has often been worried that China might deploy military forces, just as Australia does, in events of crisis like this. So there's been a pretty rapid response from Australia, New Zealand, and the two largest Forum Island countries with uh, police and, and military capacity, PNG and Fiji. So are these a Band-Aid, are they? Well, I think, as I said, there's, there's some underlying tensions that are very hard to resolve. How do you set up um, good controls over extractive industries like forestry and mining? How do you ensure that the benefits... Of, uh, of economic development, of social development, of, uh, of resource extraction flow to landowners um, whose resources uh, they are. How do you ensure free prior and informed consent? So if a Chinese businessman or an Australian businessman turns up with a proposal, be it around tourism or forestry, agriculture, that um, the community knows what they're getting into. And I think that's a, a real question. You know, there's a desperate need for infrastructure. And so Pacific governments are juggling with this all over the region, as we've talked about many times before on your program, that, um, you know, there's a question not only of dealing with longstanding uh, investment from uh, overseas, from the United States, from Australia, from Japan, but also now from China and Taiwan. And that's been the big shift that the Solomon Islands government uh, in 2019 shifted its long-term alliance with Taiwan to uh, shift diplomatic ties to China. And through the Belt and Road Initiative, through uh, uh, the Exim Bank of China, through uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises, there's a lot more opportunity for investment in infrastructure, in roads, in wharves, in public buildings, in schools that the Solomon Islands is desperate for. 
And so the current Prime Minister, Manasa Sokovari, has um, been riding the, the tiger ever since that decision in 2019, simply because some other key politicians, including the Premier of Malaita, a guy called Daniel Suidani, has been very close to Taiwan and indeed has uh, been receiving support from Taiwan over the last couple of years, and indeed the United States, even as the central government in Honiara has been uh, um, seeking more Chinese investment from the People's Republic. So we're going to hear more about the Solomon Islands in 2022. But what about the vote, the referendum vote for New Caledonia? It's off, now it's on again? Look, it's largely invisible in the Australian media who are more focused on an area like the Solomons where there's been uh, close ties. But New Caledonia is one of Australia's closest neighbours, just 1,500 kilometres off the coast of Queensland. There's a referendum on self-determination on the 12th of December this year, just a, a week or so away. And it's uh, going to be a, a really important vote simply because this is the end of a long process uh, called the Namir Accord, uh, which was an agreement signed back in 1998 between the French states and supporters and opponents of independence, setting out a long transition towards a vote that will determine New Caledonia's political status. But what's happening is that this vote won't finalise this long transition simply because the independence movement uh, and a whole range of uh, uh, organisations uh, drawing support from the indigenous Kanak population have said that they're not going to turn out to vote. They don't accept that this uh, referendum, for various reasons, is a free and fair decision. And so the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front, has called for non-participation in the vote. And so um, the two previous votes held in 2018 and 2020 that we've talked about before um, had massive participation. 81% turnout for the uh, the 2018 vote, 86%, nearly 87% in 2020, October last year. Um, in both cases, that's very high because you don't have compulsory voting in France, so you don't have to turn out and many elections might get 30 or 40% turnout, so to get 86% was very high, but we're going to see a massive fall-off of uh, participation uh, next uh, Sunday simply because uh, uh, people don't believe in the independence movement that this is a free and fair vote, and they've called on all their supporters uh, not to turn out. So a lot of people are going to go fishing uh, rather than uh, go down to the local town hall to uh, cast a vote. Okay, Nick, 15 minutes for a wrap-up of the rest of the Pacific. Well, it's been a tough year. <laughs> How's that for a summary? Um, the COVID pandemic has really disrupted people's lives. And, you you know, people in Australia who know that um, this, they've been through lockdown, they've been through uh, uh, vaccination campaigns. But Australia has had, over 2020 particularly, enormous financial support for people doing it tough during this time through schemes like JobKeeper and, and, and so on. For many poorer Pacific Island countries, they haven't had that uh, uh, support. So um, there's been a really significant economic impacts on ordinary people. I was looking at, say, French Polynesia, you know, Tahiti and the outlying archipelagos. that's had a terrible surge of uh, Delta this year. It's had the highest rate per capita of COVID anywhere in the Pacific, and it's indeed in the top 20 
uh, around the world of countries and territories affected by COVID. Um, last year, they saw a massive uh, economic hit, 50% drop in export uh, earnings and exports of goods and services, a 7.6% drop in gross domestic product. It's a rough measure of, uh, of well-being, but, um, you know, it's a big hit in one year, 5% drop in uh, household consumption. Um, and, of course, that's averaged out. Uh, rich, rich families, rich households didn't have that drop. It's the poorer members of the community, the more vulnerable families, uh, who've been most exposed to, to COVID because of housing uh, problems and uh, access to health services and so on that have borne the brunt of this. And those are the figures for 2020. Um, they haven't released the 2021 figures, but this has gone on for another year. So in some countries, people have been doing it incredibly tough. And the, the COVID pandemic has been um, um, really dominant. You know, the disruption of international tourism, the disruption of uh, exports and trade, uh, the disruption of supply, both of people coming in, uh, technical experts and people working on aid projects and so on, as well as goods and services arriving in many countries, has been a big burden. Now, gradually, um, you know, there's been incredible resilience in the Pacific, and many countries have built their way out of uh, the, the crisis, out of lockdown, just as we have. And, you know, it's a credit to the nurses, the doctors, uh, the health workers, the community outreach workers, uh, people who've been running vaccination programs, often in very difficult terrain, um, you know, and going out to outer islands on copra boats to uh, uh, to get uh, vaccines out to people who live in small communities, way out in rural areas. It's been a big challenge, and some have done better than others. You know, Papua New Guinea's still got terrible problems getting vaccines out to its community. Um, other countries have done much better. And indeed, this week we saw Fiji uh, reopen to tourism for the first time in, in nearly two years, in 18 months, um, uh, welcoming back tourism from Australia and New Zealand, which is a, a major you know, economic uh, opportunity, given that before COVID, 40% of GDP came from tourism. So people are hoping that Omicron, the new variants uh, that are coming, isn't going to throw everyone back into lockdown, but uh, you know there's ongoing campaigns to try and deal with the economic, social, and psychological impacts of uh, of the pandemic. That's been a really dominant feature right across the Pacific, and company uh, countries and uh, and people have had varying responses. Some countries have done much better and really have had no cases of COVID, but that's been done by just shutting the borders. Others, uh, French Polynesia, Guam. Uh, Fiji, to a certain extent, have had terrible surges of cases and uh, are living with the, the emotional and economic scars. How is French Polynesia getting on at the moment? Look, they've come out of the latest surge of, uh, of uh, coronavirus uh, that came particularly uh, in August and September, October, after the visit of President Macron. French President Macron arrived in late July and there was a, a huge surge of cases, um, related to people gathering, uh, you know, creating so-called super-spreader events um, uh, around the presidential visit. And, uh, you know, that's been a, a, a real burden. You know, it's had uh, uh, more than 46,000 cases, uh, which is a big number for a small country, only 270,000 people. And I'd um, like to, people who are interested in the topic, could I encourage you to look at the website for the magazine I write for, Islands Business, uh, we've done a wrap-up of COVID and health systems 
around the Pacific with articles from journalists in um, Papua New Guinea, in uh, Vanuatu, and I've contributed a piece about French Polynesia. There's some timelines, there's infographics. If you go to islandsbusiness.com, you can find out a lot about COVID in the Pacific uh, and how health systems have been under stress and how health workers, um, as they've done in Australia, have really courageously challenged this pandemic, which is, as we know, going to go on into 2022 and indeed beyond. The other concern, of course, as, as always, is the climate emergency. And um, this year, once again, Pacific non-government organisations, churches, government negotiators girded up to fight the fight at the annual COP, the Conference of the Parties, campaigning uh, once again, uh, partly successfully, uh, to try and get more urgent action on many of the issues that they're facing around the climate emergency. And um, at the beginning of the year, as she left office, I interviewed Dame Meg Taylor, the outgoing Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, and she stressed to me that despite the concerns around COVID, despite the need for finance and technical support to respond to COVID, that the climate emergency was an even greater emergency than the pandemic. And that's saying something then, you know, the absolute urgency that island nations face, um, as we've talked about before, to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, that's 1.5 below uh, pre-industrial levels. And as we know, we're already at 1.2 above pre-industrial levels. So, you know, with uh, the changes already locked into the uh, environment, Pacific Island states are, are facing a terrible existential threat. Already people have been forced from their islands? Yeah, I was talking with some colleagues in, uh, in um, Fiji the other day, and the Pacific Conference of Churches has been working with a number of communities that have had to relocate already, either partially or completely, because of uh, changes on the coastline and alongside rivers. Um, you know, some villages have had to move some buildings or indeed a large part of the community simply because the, the area that they're under is facing problems around salinity or problems around uh, rising seas, uh, rising uh, river flooding. Um, so already, even in a country like Fiji, which is a relatively wealthy country by Pacific standards, you're seeing the relocation of a number of villages. You know, in, in low-lying atoll countries, you know, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Tokelau, the Marshall Islands, the problems are even worse. And so you've had politicians most vocal campaigning for more urgent action and also the climate finance that uh, OECD countries, wealthy developed countries, pledged uh, more than a decade ago and have failed to provide um, at the beginning of this year, a, a, an expert group reporting to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres found that OECD countries had failed to meet the target that was set uh, and locked into the Paris Agreement that each year uh, developed countries would give $100 billion, $100 billion US dollars to developing countries for mitigation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and for adaptation to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change related to cyclones and storms and, and so on. So this year, uh, um, it was very hard to get to Glasgow for many Pacific delegations, and indeed the numbers of negotiators of government delegations was much smaller than normal. 
simply because of the difficulty of getting across the world, transiting through many transit hubs in an age of uh, COVID restrictions. And so uh, a lot of Pacific uh, delegations were much smaller this year, and yet they were still fighting on issues that they've been fighting on for two decades around loss and damage, around climate finance, um, making the connection around the oceans with climate impacts, and uh, indeed calling for uh, much faster emissions and um, uh, emissions reductions, I should say. You know, of course, on all of those areas, Australia has stood aside from its Pacific Island neighbours to great anger and, and contempt, indeed, from uh, Pacific leaders, Pacific communities, Pacific negotiators towards uh, the way that Australia and the Morrison government has acted during these negotiations. Well, Nick, it's good to know that we've got a backyard. Well, Prime Minister Morrison has really alienated a, a lot of his counterparts in the Pacific personally, and that was evident back in 2019 when I attended the Pacific Islands Forum, the last time that leaders had a face-to-face meeting and uh, signed a, a declaration called the Kainaki Dua Declaration. And the Kainaki Declaration made a whole series of commitments where all signatories and supporters of the declaration, including Australia, made commitments to take more urgent action. But as we know, Scott Morrison went through the theatre of, uh, of persuading the National Party to adopt a net zero by 2050. Now, this is a target that's been accepted and welcomed by the Business Council of Australia, the Minerals Council of Australia, the National Farmers Federation. Any, anything give you a hint that 2050 targets are pretty meaningless for the big end of town? What's more important is that urgent action now, before 2030, because uh, we need a massive reduction of emissions, uh, both in Australia and globally, before 2030, not by 2050. And that was something that the Pacific was campaigning for. Forum Chair of Varengi Bainimarama talked about the importance of 2030 targets. And as you'll know, Scott Morrison went uh, proudly proclaiming that Australia had finally adopted net zero by 2050, which is pretty meaningless in the current context. And there's a lot of anger that remains in the Pacific towards the Australian government around its refusal to even do the bare minimum of updating its targets as countries are required to do under the Paris Agreement for 2030. Well, it looks as though we'll have plenty to talk about next year, Nick. Look, there's a lot happening. Um, big movements uh, around the region still, a lot of people organising. You know, this has provided a, these crucial times, these complex times, have allowed people to think about their society and uh, we've often talked about the gloomy aspects, but there's some incredible mobilizations going on. Just uh, last week, on the 1st of December, the uh, the anniversary, the 60th anniversary of the uh, raising of the uh, Morning Star flag in uh, Jayapura, the West Papuan movement has you know, really expanded its support across the region. And on the 1st of December, churches, civil society groups, politicians, governments... Uh, express their support and solidarity for the West Papua movement. So in 2022, we're going to see a lot more mobilisation, not only in West Papua itself, but across the Pacific Islands region in solidarity with the West Papua struggle. You know, New Caledonia is going to go on. There's French elections. Macron goes to presidential elections in April. There's French legislative elections uh, before June. 
Um, indeed, Australia will have had their elections by the middle of next year, so that's going to change the terrain um, for uh, the way people respond to uh, French colonialism, to Australia's role in the region. And um, presuming there's a change of government, there's going to be a whole list of issues that the uh, incoming Labor or Labor-Green government is going to have to face up to in the Pacific next year. The pandemic will continue on, but the resilience that people have shown in, in adapting to it, as, as has happened in Australia, is going to play out across the region. As people look at, well, if we're not going to be reliant on tourism, what sort of economy, what sort of society do we want to have? And below the waves, there's enormous discussions going on around uh, this uh, uh, unity visions for the Pacific um, that aren't so reliant on the, the handouts and the, the systems of support that have been been in existence pre-COVID. People desperately need international support, but there's a lot of thinking going on about how to uh, rebuild societies in the wake of uh, you know this global emergency. There's some interesting times ahead, and as always, uh, people should tune into 3CR to uh, to hear the voices of the Pacific and the concerns that uh, ordinary people are raising around our region. Thanks as always, Nick. Thanks, Jan, and uh, look forward to uh, more uh, discussions in 2022. And Nick McLean will be very welcome back at 3CR in 2022 for Tuesday Home Time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.